You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Good evening and welcome to Talk of the Bay. I'm your host, Rick Kleffel. With me in the studio tonight, Jeffrey Dunn. We'll be talking about the lies of Sarah Palin. We've only got an hour to do so. We're going to have to move fast. And we're looking for your your calls here at KUSP. That's 1-800-655-5877 or 476-2800 if you want to talk to or ask some questions of Jeffrey Dunn. Coming up, the lies of Sarah Palin. It's Talk of the Bay. Stay tuned. Jeffrey Dunn is an award-winning investigative reporter, a senior correspondent for Metro Newspapers in California, and a regular contributor to the San Francisco Chronicle and the Huffington Post. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. Thank you for having me tonight, Rick. Pleasure. Jeff, this is a really remarkable book, and it, a couple things. Just let's talk about just this, uh, some of the background to this book. You start This started out as a very different book from what it ended up being, didn't it? Yeah, when I first conceived the book, which probably happened right after the election in 2008, I assumed that Sarah Palin was going to go back to Alaska, serve out her first term as governor, and probably run for re-election in 2010 before uh, kind of participating some way in the 2012 presidential election. And I assumed that her platform in the American political discourse would be diminished after the election. And in fact, what happened... Uh, as you know, she resigned uh, less than a year later, and she just sprung out uh, in the American body politic and became a national figure and a national force and a national brand name. And so the book really changed from an introspective, almost theoretical look at her original candidacy for vice president uh, to an investigative massive investigative piece about her background uh, and what I would call a polemic against her her position in American politics. You know, one of the things that strikes me uh, about this book is uh, I think the prose is really nice. And and I'd like you to talk about um, writing a political book that is lively and interesting and, you know, engages the reader beyond just the subject. So um, as you started out writing this book, did this come from columns that you've been working in this working this ground for a long time, haven't you? Well, it's an interesting question. I really appreciate you saying that and noticing that. It's written very differently from my Huffington Post columns, a very different voice. And what I wanted to do was write in almost... A, a, a fictional narrative using a prose that was going to be very readable, very accessible uh, to all readers. And I felt like there was a narrative arc to her story that made her um, a bit like a Gatsby figure, if you will. Somewhere, <laughs> somewhere between maybe Gatsby and Ahab. And Dr. Strangelow. <laughs> there you go, all of the above. But she has a fictional quality to her. And I felt like I needed to draw my characters out more. Mm -hmm. I knew it was going to be a big book at one point. And I said, no, this can't be dry political prose, nor can it be kind of the hard-driving narrative of a 1,000-word piece for the Huffington Post. So I shaped the book uh, thinking that this is the great American novel and she is a figure in it, and then I got to get back to my research and and dig up all, all the real sources. Well, that's how it reads to me. There's a, there is a certain kind of uh, thriller-esque uh, what's going to happen next because the things that you reveal, um, even though we've seen a lot of this stuff before our eyes, to uh, see it put in a sequenced narrative is a really interesting experience. And one of the things I think that you do very well in this book is go back and because you're writing a book, you've got... a uh, 
you're, you're dealing with a different time frame from just news. So you can go back and look at things that have fallen by the wayside and maybe stories that were never completed, you can tell in their completion. So rather than just seeing the beginning of a story that then kind of dwindles off um, once we've... Uh, once the something else bigger and more exciting has arrived, you can tell that whole story. That was one of the gifts of being able to tell tell the story in retrospective. Let me give you an example. I think it is a good one. The Trooper Gate story. Mm-hmm. Most people have heard of Trooper Gate. It came up during the election campaign, but really no one had any real idea as to any of the details, who the trooper was, who was fired. Whenever I talk to people about it, they assumed that the guy she fired was her ex-brother-in-law, and they really didn't understand any of the links. Of course, during the campaign, the Alaska legislature conducted an investigation. It was a 14-0 vote, bipartisan, unanimous vote, to conduct the investigation against Palin. She agreed to it. She said she would fully participate. Then she changed her mind, and the investigator, a Republican, conservative Republican, former prosecutor, found her guilty of abusing her power. And her immediate response when asked about that was to say, oh, he exonerated me. I wasn't found guilty of abusing my power. And she said that to the national press. She said it to the Alaska press. Now, I want to say one of the great moments in Uh, journalism that took place during the election but didn't carry through nationally, the Alaska, uh, the Anchorage Daily News actually called her on lying about it. And they wrote a really pointed, uh, nasty editorial about Palin lying about this. Didn't resonate at all in the national media. Palin got away with it during the campaign. Here we have a candidate for national office being found guilty by a Republican prosecutor of abusing her power, and the American media media gave her a, a, a pass. She got a total pass on that. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, I find uh, so fascinating uh, about this book, too, is to give us a complete picture of her because you go into her childhood and, and just from the very beginning, even before she was born, it seems almost she was destined to lie. Her Even her birth, there were lies about her very birth. There, the, I call it a pathology of deceit. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I feel my book is, uh, is a counter-narrative to her mythology going rogue. Well, that book to me, that must book, after reading this book, my guess is that book to me would seem like uh, in what science fiction uh, writers call alternate history. It absolutely is. Uh, John McCain's campaign manager, Steve Schmidt, called it total fiction. <laughs> Uh, And, of course, he had a lot of problems with his candidate, Sarah Palin, during the campaign. One of the things I discovered as soon as I got up to Alaska was everyone was coming up to me telling me, oh, you know, this isn't true. That's not true. Every document that I found, you know, provided counter information to what she had claimed or said. So I really wanted to go back and ask people about this sort of uh, father's knows best meets Lassie, meets Ozzie and Harriet childhood in the last frontier that she described in Going Rogue and talk to real people in her life. And this is what I got, all right? I got two types of people. People who were willing to go on the record and tell me what the real story was and then people who would tell me what the real story was who were absolutely afraid to go on the record Mm. and refused to have me repeat any of the stories. So I took a couple of the stories that I heard and wove them into the narrative of her childhood and I only used two people who agreed to go on the record for that, uh, one by the name of Robin Yvonne Bachelor and Cheryl Welch. Mm. And uh, they told me these amazing stories about growing up in Wasilla with then Sarah Heath and the Heath clan. And it wasn't quite Father Knows Best meets Ozzie and Harriet meets Lassie in the New Frontier. There was a dark side to it. Mm. And, you know, to see, to then jump to this past Tucson, uh, past uh, January and the events in Tucson, what happened. And, you know, her absolute tone-deaf response to the tragedy in Tucson. 
there needs to be an explanation for that person. Mm. And I think I explain that person and who that is and how she got there. Uh, people who have been critical of my rendition as being too hard on her, they don't explain how we get from A to Z. And I think my book does that. Well, you explain also how you got from A to Z. You're, you didn't just uh, decide to focus in on this Alaskan governor. You spent some time in Alaska long ago, long before she was even dreaming of being governor. She was probably dreaming of being a cheerleader at that point in time. She probably wasn't even at that point when I first <laughs> got there. She was 10 years old when I first got to Alaska. In Alaska, you know, in 1974 when I first went up there, Alaska was really a rough-and-tumble place. Uh, Anchorage was a boomtown with oil, and it really was stepping into the Wild West. Guys were carrying pistols on, uh, you know, uh, 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 sidearms openly in Anchorage then. They still do, by the way. Mm. People still carry sidearms in Alaska, particularly in south-central Alaska in the Anchorage and Matsu regions, uh, carry sidearms openly and aggressively there it's it's part of the alaska way everyone it's a gun loving state but when i got there in 74 it really was a rugged place and uh very different than it is today but it was my first introduction to alaska politics and what people forget is is that the oil industry rules alaska it's it's 85 percent of the economy is of the private economy private sector in alaska is oil driven it's not fish it's not tourism it's oil and it's very similar in its political structure to louisiana in the 1930s uh and oil dominates the political se sector as well and you're when you in your book you mention uh somebody whom uh sarah palin ba bears some at least a psychological resemblance to if not physical uh huey long huey p long the kingfish <laughs> and one of the things i did was read robert penn warren's classic about long all the president's men all the king's men excuse me all the king's men uh, his classic novel. There's a reason it's a classic. It's a beautifully written piece of work and Re still re resonant of the rotten America. And I read the novel before embarking on writing this. And You know, that makes sense. Okay, okay. <laughs> oh, I get it. You do? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm giving away a trade secret here. I read the novel because I wanted it to read like that and not some dry political tract. And that, well, that makes sense because it really does have some of that feel to it. Now, um, let's talk just a little bit about uh, Sarah in high school. Mm -hmm. uh, she uh, was had thick glasses, but she was pretty, and she had her own clique, didn't she? She had a very tight clique that was revolved around Christian athletes, mm -hmm. and it defined her and shaped her adulthood clearly. And she still quotes that she learned everything she knew on the basketball court. Absolutely. Although in her book, she claims to have been a varsity player for four years. And one of the things I discovered is that she had been pushed down to the junior varsity, not only her freshman and sophomore year, but also her junior year, much to her dismay. Uh, she fought with coaches, etc. She was one of three co-captains on the basketball team her senior year. One of the th stories that Cheryl Welch talks about growing up playing basketball against Sarah as a teammate. Got to remember, the nickname Sarah ba Barracuda came from her teammates, not about how she played against her opponents, <laughs> but how she was with her teammates on the court. And, you know, Cheryl describes that behavior. All elbows, all angst, all energy, all aggression. Now, uh, this we can still see uh, that hasn't gone away, has it? <laughs> no, again, uh, this, is, this is the Sarah Palin we see on the campaign trail. And so, again, I think my narrative links this, this person who is now a public figure in American politics who has positioned herself really in a nasty way, and I want to talk about that a little more, mm -hmm. as the anti-Obama and what that means. But she took it upon herself during the campaign to present herself as the anti-Obama, crossed all sorts of lines in doing so. Mm. That's the same Sarah Palin, Sarah Heath, who played basketball the same way in high school. And, and she... 
from the very beginning, um, she was described as a pathological liar. She told lies, lies, lies. This is not just a, a means of self-defense. This is not just e- convenient political evasion. This is, I think, one your book makes very clear. It's a basic component of her psychology from it- the beginning. Absolutely, it's who she is. Now, I do think it is part of a defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. And when she gets called on it, she becomes even more entrenched. She digs in even harder. And, you know, uh, one of the the great moments in the campaign and that I loved getting to do in the book is to to put the interviews to words. For instance, the Katie Couric interview, Mm. which many people saw, Mm -hmm. but few few people have read. It's really interesting to read her her words as she speaks them. It's a very different experience from seeing it on screen because I think, and you make this clear too, she has an undeniable charisma and she's a she's a talented, I wouldn't say she's a talented speaker, but she's a good rabble rouser. She's, um, let's see, her great talent, and she really has this talent, mm-hmm. um, is to go out on the campaign trail and to really rev the crowds up Mm -hmm. she did that at her opening speech in minneapolis st paul during the convention and uh that was the her moment great moment of triumph but on the campaign after her debate with joe biden which comes in early october for the next month, she goes out there and she revs up the base. And she is great at doing that. And I want to make the point here, now, and everywhere that if she does it again in 2012, she will be very effective at that. She drew crowds in Florida in a couple of spots, 60,000 people. McCain was drawing 1,500, 2,000 people. Uh, she brought a juice to that campaign that they wouldn't have otherwise had. Conversely, she brought juice to the Obama campaign that they didn't have otherwise. Now, Obama, of course, has a similar type of charisma and ability to rev up his audience uh, and is incredibly articulate uh, and charismatic. But what the Democrats realized was as soon as they named uh, Palin as their uh, VP candidate, Democratic coffers filled up. For every dollar that was raised for the Republicans, the demos raised the same amount. So all it did was up the ante on both sides. Her presence up the ante. Conversely, her negatives went way up and her favorability rating went way down. And so that was a really a determining factor in the 2008 election. Republicans don't like to admit it. Dems don't like to talk about it a whole lot. But I saw the Democratic surveys and polls, and it clearly showed that Palin had a significant impact on the 2008 election, and it wasn't positive for the Republicans. Uh, her, her, her effect was to terrify Democrats to get out and vote. I mean, you were, we were literally, or, or the Democrats, I think, were literally so frightened that she might be a heartbeat from the presidency, as they say, that uh, somebody like that, um, that it made you go out and vote against her. So uh, uh, what you're saying then is a lot of the votes for Obama were just as equally a, a votes against Palin. It was a combination mm. of factors. Uh, I, Obama had the highest positives of anybody in the campaign. Mm. Okay. And she had the, the, the highest negatives. <laughs> That's uh, a really interesting contrast. Absolutely. And if you look at the numbers, although Obama's numbers have gone down significantly <laughs> since the election as well. But if you look at just the two-month period... Uh, during the election from the time she was named in uh, late August of 2008 to election day in November of 2008, that two-month period, I think it's a period of actually nine weeks, um, their numbers went exactly the other way. Well, now, one of the things that I think is so interesting about this book is that you take us back to, to Wasilla and, and her, her battles there, and we can see when we read your book, um, uh, we can see... This, the same exact Sarah Palin that we saw in, on a national stage, we can see that same person working on just the small stage. And it's so interesting because 
we can relate to that small stage. We know, I know people, you know, I've gone down and talked to Ellen Peary and stuff. And so we can see that. And it's interesting to have that kind of uh, ramp up to see what happens when somebody who is clearly dysfunctional at a local level manages still to uh, keep one step ahead <laughs> and, and escape. Uh, she was like kind of like a wily coyote, but never went all the way off the cliff. Not quite, but uh, she had, uh, like wily coyote, she had more than one life. Right? <laughs> right. She actually did go off the cliff and yeah. survived like wily coyote. And since Ellen Peary is a friend of mine, I want you to know that Rick's not making any comparisons. No, no, to, no. <laughs> okay. I, uh, I okay. like Ellen Peary. She's great. I M- talked to too. her many times. Uh, and, uh, but what you meant was the local level. The local okay. level. All right. Well, here's the story. Almost her first day in office mm-hmm. as mayor of Wasilla, she fires a very popular police chief named Earl Stambaugh, whose story I tell in the book. Mm-hmm. Vietnam vet, native of Alaska, uh, had served on the Anchorage Police Department for 25 years, with all with esteem, is named the police chief of Wasilla after a long process. A stand-up guy. Absolutely. One of the great people I met in this process. Mm-hmm. And it's a great story. I had a friend who knew Earl. Mm. You know, everyone in Alaska knows everybody. <laughs> it, you realize uh, the population of Alaska, and this is including Alaska natives mm-hmm. and everyone from the Aleutians down to Ketchikan in the southeast up to uh, the, the the oil rigs on the on the north shore of Alaska. Where they can see Russia. Where they, well, <laughs> on the west end, on the west end. There is one place where you can, God bless them. But um, everyone knows everyone, and the population is smaller than Sam Farr's congressional district here wow. on, the, on the central coast. That's okay. kind of scary. So Sam Farr, as our congressional representative, represents more people than Sarah Palin ever did as governor of Alaska. Okay, they have, and they have two two U.S. senators and one Congress member from up there. Okay, so they they are highly represented in the Senate and have had great power because of that in Congress. Okay, but that's a side point. The point is, uh, it's two degrees of separation up there with everybody. Mm. Uh, it's like being in a small town. And so it's I had a, a friend state who that's knew a small town. What? It's a state that's a small town. Yeah, it's there's a phrase for it that has some vulgarities in it, and I, I, I better not. And I'll think <laughs> of a polite way to say it a little later on. But basically, I had a friend who knew Earl Stambaugh. So I said to my wife, "Hmm, maybe I can find Earl." So I looked him up in the phone book, and his name was listed. And of course, I gave him a call. Got his late wife, who just passed away uh, uh, several months ago, uh, named Solly, and she said, "Well, no, Earl's not here, but he's out at the cabin. Here's his cell number. You can call him." And I had a fascinating discussion with Earl uh, the day of Palin's nomination. Wow! And I so I reported it for the. Uh, 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 Newspaper I was working for at the time. It was before I started writing for Huffington. And basically, he gave me a great quote how Palin rules from vengeance. And uh, that hers, that's what motivates her. That's what drives her. And he, of course, had been fired by her during her first week of tenure. And then she lied about firing him. Even though she had written him a letter firing him that he read to the reporter from the Anchorage Daily News, Palin said, oh, no, I haven't fired him. And that's what led to the very first editorial by the Matsu Valley Miner, mm-hmm. frontiersman, rather, excuse me, saying she's a liar. Palin doesn't un- have a relationship with the truth. And so that was what the media up there was talking about her when she's a small-town mayor. Uh, about and 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 Wasilla in, in comparison is about the size of Capitola. Okay? Wow! So that's what we're really talking about. Okay, <laughs> uh, and Capitolas run much more smoothly than Wasilla, and um, I'd much rather be in Capitola than Wasilla. Me too. Now, uh, one of the things that is remarkable about this book, 
uh, is the kind of access you got to documents. You got access, you had access to people. And so talk about uh, just, you know, get some of the documents you got. As I was reading some of these campaign memos and emails, I'm going thinking, my God, this is not something that anybody's going to cough up, uh, you know, easily. Well, and I'm glad you noticed that, you know. One of the things this book does is really get at the documentation of Palin's career. It's really heavily that, and it's fascinating reading. It reminds me a little bit of of the the novel Dracula, which is where you get a lot of letters and essays and stuff uh, beyond the plot. And so that's kind of the these these emails and letters that you go kind of advance the plot in, in a really interesting way. And again, I was using novelistic devices to mm-hmm. tell that story and wrap them around these concrete documents. So, look, I live here in Santa Cruz. How did you get documents from the McCain campaign? Emails from the McCain campaign. Well, I'll talk about that mm-hmm. in a second. Remind me, okay? okay? And I'm writing basically theoretical responses to Palin mm-hmm. for the Huffington Post calling her on the lies that are clear. Mm-hmm. And I start digging into documents, and this is a fascinating story for me. Let's talk about the documents not from the McCain campaign mm-hmm. first. Um, Palin, through Earl Stambaugh, after firing Earl Stambaugh, was engaged in a three- or four-year legal battle with him. Really? Yeah. And, you know... It's a public legal battle uh, <laughs> that went all the way, I think, to the Ninth Circuit Court, federal court. And those documents are all in Seattle. So okay? you just hauled yourself up to Seattle? And- I had someone f- dig a lot of them up in Seattle. And then I'm in uh, a law, uh, I've been two law offices in Anchorage in the summer of 2009. And I'm not kidding you. People bring out stacks of documents. I think I eventually had 40,000 pages of documents leaked to me. Wow. I guess people were were anxious to get this story to get out. They just felt like it hadn't gotten out, and they were rather stunned by it and appalled by it. And, you know, partly it was we have 24-7 news cycles, so the media that covers the campaign has to follow what's going on day by day just so quickly, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And no one had done even a modicum of digging. I think I'm a pretty good investigative reporter, and I've won a national award for investigative reporting. It partly is you just stay on the story and follow it, you know? Uh, I was taught early on by a great investigative reporter here by the name of Bob Johnson, who wrote for uh, publications here for many years, and the late Jim DeKid. Early on, when I was young, they told me to follow the money. Okay? Mm. Well, with Palin, following the money is interesting, and it produced some stuff. But I kind of wanted to follow the people she had thrown under the bus along the way. And That's I a fig- crowd. Yeah. No, it's a stadium with those people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was just thinking of Phil Dodger Stadium. But uh, and I'm saying that for genial Johnny Simmons. But yeah, Phil's a stadium. And I kind of followed that that detritus, right, that Mm -hmm. she'd left behind. And in two days in Anchorage, I had discovered really thousands of pages of documents that no one had ever seen before. Wow. And brought them home to where I was staying in Anchorage, show them to my wife, right? (laughs) But how do we know what's been seen and what's not been seen before? Mm -hmm. And they were spellbinding, okay? So finally, and this was very serendipitous, I wrote a member of the McCain campaign who I felt might be simpatico to me. Mm-hmm. And I want to say it wasn't Steve Schmidt, it was someone else. And wrote him just a heartfelt letter off the gut and said, you know, can we talk about what happened? And I sent him one of the documents that I had uncovered, assuming he had seen it. Mm-hmm. Never seen it. Wow. Okay. 
So what it meant was that I had, in a, like a 48-hour period in Anchorage, done a far better vetting job than the McCain campaign ever had saw documents that they had never seen. And I mean, a lot of documents they had never seen. They had never seen her deposition in the Earl Stambaugh case. Wow. Okay. So, because I dug all this stuff up, they kind of realized I was serious and writing a very serious book. And that became my entree into the McCain campaign. And I had so many documents from the campaign leaked to me because they were disgusted by her behavior. And she was calling them all sorts of names after the election, blaming them for all sorts of things, wrote a book that, as I said, Steve, Fick, Steve Schmidt called Total Fiction, and they wanted me to see the facts. So one of the things they sent me that you've read was a document uh, written by a young politico political operative in New Hampshire mm. that kind of laid it all out. <laughs> I really like that. I'm speaking with Jeffrey Dunn. His new book is The Lives of Sarah Palin. We'll be back in just a moment. Support for KUSP is by Santa Cruz Coffee Roasting Company. Santa Cruz Coffee Roasting Company features brew bar individually dripped certified fair trade organic coffees located in the Palomar Inn on Pacific Avenue. My name is Rick Kleffel. You're listening to Talk of the Bay on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. With me in the studio live is Jeffrey Dunn. He's the award-winning investigative reporter and a senior correspondent for Metro Newspapers, and his new book is The Lies of Sarah Palin. It is, let me see here in this edition, I have 445 pages long. That's a lot of lies, Jeffrey. Yeah, this is volume one, as we joke. I think that you got, I, I'm impressed, you got the earliest version of the book. I, I only have one copy of that. The final total is like 464 pages, so even longer. Well, uh, let, let's uh, get back to, let's talk a little bit about uh, Governor Palin. She had a, a, a troubled governorship. It was not uh, a, an easy ride for her, and uh, her tendencies for uh, compulsive control and when things going out of control to compulsively lie about what was happening uh, manifested early and often, didn't they? Absolutely. Look, we talked a little bit about Troopergate. One of the um, trails that I dug up in my investigation was the trail of Troopergate and what she did to uh, her ex-brother-in-law, Mike Wooten. Let, give us a, a just a, a, a brief précis of what Troopergate was. Okay. Sarah Palin, Sarah Heath Palin, has two sisters and a brother. Mm -hmm. Her youngest sister, Molly, was married to a young Alaska State Trooper named Mike Wooten, who had served 10 years in the United States Air Force. They met, fell in love, got married... Uh, lived in Wasilla, as do all the Palin clan, live very close to uh, their parents. Uh, uh, three of them live within a few miles, and then one sister lives in Anchorage, 45 minutes away. Okay, very tight-knit clan. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're married, and after a while, the marriage goes south, like many do. Uh, happens. And not a pretty picture. Uh, there are some scenes that, uh, you know, are troubling between the two of them, uh, and it gets legal. There's a divorce, and then they're trying to get Wooten fired from being a trooper. Now, Palin claims in her book and claimed afterwards that as soon as the divorce ended, uh, their efforts of going after Wooten stopped. But as you'll note in the book, I found an email, had an email leaked to me, a very critical email leaked to me, P written prior to her election as governor, before she became governor, where she goes after this brother-in-law, goes out of her way to attack him in this email and talk about him, and she was just obsessed with him. Mm -hmm. Her father was obsessed with him, Chuck Heath, and her 
husband was obsessed with him. And they stay obsessed with him throughout her governorship. And she claims there had never been any influence to get him fired or anything like that. And I think I uncovered 30-odd instances where either she or her husband had initiated contact with other state of Alaska employees uh, in an attempt to get him fired. And, of course, the most famous one Mm -hmm. was this interview with her uh, chief advisor, Frank Bailey, which was a smoking gun. He didn't realize it was taped, in which he goes <laughs> back after Wooten three or four times. Uh, and, of course, they claimed that none of this had happened. And if you read the, the Troopergate story interwoven with her governorship, you see uh, how corrupt that governorship was. Mm. The second corresponding narrative in her governorship is Vico from, from the what Vico? No, oh, well okay. Vico's going on too, mm. and she's got loose perimeters with that. You know, a dozen Alaska legislators and elected officials are investigated for taking bribes from Vico. Mm. Right, that's going on at the same time. But the other thing that I think is really important that has been overlooked. Uh, And it's still being overlooked, and I'm going to probably write another piece about it because it's real clear that she had her eyes set on the vice presidency from the Mm get-go. And there's a website that comes on board. Oh, that's right, yeah. In February of 2008, Palin for vice president. It was a blog spot. Blog spot by a guy named Adam Brickley. Brickley, right, right. Who who thinks that she's going to be the counterpoint to... Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton, because everyone thinks Clinton's going to be the Democratic nominee, and the Republicans are going to have to have, Rudy Giuliani is going to have to have a, a female <laughs> running mate, right? So this is really interesting. And one of the things I think you do really well is uh, explore the politics of the Republican Party and, and the politics of, this, uh, of the McCain nomination and the way this all swam through in a way, because we, uh, we have you know, almost instant amnesia. Uh, for the way for the political process and the nomination process, once every once the nominations happen, anything that's happened before that just almost didn't happen. But because of the way things happened during the McCain nomination and the uh, Palin nomination, it's important to understand where Palin is now. It's important to understand. Um, now we can uh, get people here if you want to call. Call in four seven six. 2800 or 1-800-655-5877 if you want to ask Jeffrey Dunn a question. Jeff, let's talk a, a little bit about this uh, early um, president, uh, vice presidential process. It's really fascinating, I think. Okay. That, I'm glad you brought that up because I devote a whole chapter to it. Mm-hmm. And I would say this is the one luxury I took in telling this story and that I felt needed to be told. How did Palin get picked by the McCain campaign? It's the one question I've all, I'm always asked. How did it happen? Why did it happen? And I think it's, I felt it important to go kind of back to the beginning of McCain deciding to run for president. Mm. And you have to remember, he ran for president first in 2000 against George Bush. And that was a dirty campaign. Dirty oh campaign. And he's the outsider. Mm. The, the Republican establishment hates McCain. He's a maverick. He's voted against him. He's threatened to become a Democrat. The, he's running a pirate ship. That's what they called his campaign in 2000. <laughs> right? The Straight Talk Express. Mm. And he's got full access to the media. The media loves him. He's saying everything in, under the sun. And the, 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 the guy who kind of constructed that campaign was a guy named John Weaver. Mm. John Weaver is a fascinating figure out of Western Texas who becomes a political operative close to close to McCain, McCain and in a bar in Alabama on a, 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 a napkin sort of draws out how McCain can become president. You know, this is something that I want to just mention that you do very well in this book is you create characters for us. So we can under so we can put these characters in context of the story arc of Sarah Palin and and John McCain and Weaver is a really great character. 
things. And I, I felt it's important mm-hmm. in a political book to, to explain who these people are. Most of these journalistic books on the election, you don't know who these people are. You read about Weaver or Schmidt or Salter, and there's no descriptions of them. Mm-hmm. So I felt it important to you know build the character a little bit. So Weaver's this fascinating character. Um, and he is counterpoint. It's it really. It's just like the film Platoon. Okay, <laughs> you know, there's there's the there's the there's the good sergeant and the bad sergeant in Platoon. Uh, Weaver's the good sergeant. The bad sergeant is this guy named Rick Davis, who is very close to to McCain and his wife. And the McCain campaign blows up in two thousand seven. Davis takes it over. Everyone thinks McCain's out. Everyone mm-hmm. thinks it's going to be Giuliani. But Giuliani makes a zillion mistakes. Everyone in the GOP makes mistakes. And to his credit, McCain stays steady, wins the nomination. Okay? But in June of two, or July of 2008, after he secured the nomination, he fires Davis and places instead at the helm although not with title, but with practice, this young political operative named Steve Schmidt lives in California, mm. had worked for Karl Rove. Rove calls him the bullet. Uh, had That's a run- scary title if Karl Rove gives you that name. <laughs> uh, well, let me say, I will say this. Uh, Steve Schmidt's an intimidating guy. Uh, and in 2006, let's get current, he runs Schwarzenegger's campaign for re-election. Right? And steers Schwarzenegger back to the middle to win the election 2006. So he's a very savvy mm-hmm. political operative. Uh, and he is a tough, straight talking guy, no nonsense guy. He's got a wonderful, deep sense of humor, but he is focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you know, Nick, Nick, McCain's nicknaming him the Sarge. What's that tell you? <laughs> that tells you uh, you're going to do what he says and you're going to stay out of his way. That's absolutely. So So, in July, Schmidt takes over the campaign. Rick Davis is charged with the vice presidential selection. Hmm. McCain wants Joe Lieberman. It's his best buddy, one of his two best buddies. They've traveled the world together. Their worldviews are similar. McCain feels comfortable with him. And what a great pick, right? It's a Mm -hmm. Mavericks pick. Lieberman's the vice presidential candidate for the Democrats only eight years earlier. Yeah, no, it seemed kind of scarily uh, plausible. And and, And brilliant. Yeah. And Mavericky. Yeah. All the above. And what happens? They get up to the convention, and all along, everyone thinks it's going to be Lieberman. They just have accepted that. It's a bold move. Risky, but bold. And then within weeks of the election, the Republican right, the evangelical Christian base, the right-wing base of the Republican Party says no dice. Yeah, no, 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 and no, uh, uh, Pro-abortion. No, no, it had to be pro-life. Had to be pro-life. Can't be pro-choice. And they're threatening a walkout at the convention. They're threatening 40% walkout at the convention. And there's these letters being written and threats being made that none of us ever saw. Mm. None of us ever saw at the time of a walkout. And it freaks the McCain camp out. And you can understand why. Absolutely, to a point. Mm. Okay? So all of a sudden, if it's got to be a so-called anti-abortion pro-life candidate, of all the people they've vetted, they're down to two and maybe a third. All right? They're down to Palenti, Romney, and as a third outside shot, Sarah Palin, who had not been properly vetted. Mm. At obviously. that time. <laughs> well, not so obviously. They claim that she had been. Really? But as I note in the book, she had not been. Oh, it's clear. Right. I mean, Weaver makes the great point. The people who vetted her will tell you what a great job they did. They, you know, they looked into her background. They looked all over. They got her tax returns. They even squeezed out of her that her, her daughter was pregnant. Mm-hmm. Okay. They got all the dirt on her. But they really didn't do a political vet on her, and they didn't have a chance. 
We're talking, this was done, the real Vetiser panel was done over a 48-hour period, okay? So what happened was they get down to these three, and at the time, you got to understand, McCain does not like Mitt Romney. Mm. That's, he's not a pirate, you know, I mean, no. but, you know, uh, no. and, and Mitch just doesn't play to, okay. Whereas Palenti and uh, McCain were friends. And friends from the time that Palenti was a young man driving McCain around uh, during Republican campaigns in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. They had a really good rapport. But if, I, 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 told, I, I use this line, if Romney's uh, cardboard man... Palenti's recycled cardboard, <laughs> right? At least to some of those in the McCain campaign. Right. And I think Palenti might have made an interesting choice. And he's what's called a Sam's Club Republican. Mm. He's elected governor in a blue state as a Republican. Uh, he had a lot of crossover votes. He's also the real deal. I mean, you know, he worked his way through college, law school, etc. He's he's a real guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I... I'd always loved to play that one over again had they picked Palenti. But people in the McCain camp aren't real fond of Palenti, don't think he has charisma, and so they go to Palin. And it really was a last-minute choice. Hail Mary. In the words of Barack Obama, a Hail Mary play. And in the words of many uh, people across the political spectrum, a Hail Mary play. And immediate, or at least apparently, immediately very effective. I mean, they turned, she turned that her acceptance speech turned the campaign around. The Republicans took the lead. Had Sarah Palin, and this is to be fair to everyone in the McCain camp, and uh, really, and I, I feel I need to be fair to them mm-hmm. in the McCain camp, had she been even close to who they thought they were getting? <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a serious horse race. Anyone who tells you that it was inevitable that Barack Obama was going to win, let's think about that. Barack Obama, an African American with that name, running for president in this country is a lock, a shoe in? I don't think so. Okay? Had Palin been anything close to what they thought they were getting, it's a horse race. And they took a lead. After Palin. He's 48-45. Yeah. Three-point lead. And then comes the Katie Couric interview. (laughs) Now, one of the things I think that's really interesting, we talked a little bit about this, Now, and I want to explore it now more, is to read uh, the the way she talks. Because the way she talks, um, you describe it perfectly. It's filibustering. And that is a really interesting way of putting it because – but instead of trying to put off the vote, she's trying to put off the listener's um, eventual understanding that she really does not know anything about anything. And that became apparent to the McCain campaign advisors very early on. Mm. They realized she knew nothing about American politics. She knew nothing about foreign affairs. She knew nothing about – uh, global conflicts in which we were engaged, and it terrified them. The problem was was that she didn't see that as a problem. She saw it as a plus, that I'm just like them. And it is a plus <laughs> with a certain sector of the American public. Sure. Including in this community. Mm. Okay? So it is a plus. Uh, there's Bill Clinton had a great line. He said... We're going into a fact-free period in American history. (laughs) Oh, that's true. And Palin played to that moment. Mm. Uh, What happens, though, if you look at her interviews and read them, she she speaks in a way that my friends in Alaska call it a word salad. (laughs) You know, she just sort of mixes it all up and throws out phrases and... Uh, catchphrases that have no meaning, no linkage, no relevance. Uh, And it's like she's pulling out phrases from all over the place. She really can't discuss policy. She has no interest in policy. She can't discuss history. She has no interest in history. 
And one of the things too you you mention and demonstrate with uh, your transcripts is that she's asked one question and she it's like she doesn't even listen to what the question is. She already has another answer that's somewhat scripted, even though it's only as scripted into her word salad of the day. Um, and that's the one she goes with. And there's a great example uh, when she goes off. I think it's earlier on when she talks about uh, uh, energy answer something about energy. They ask her about education, and, and this is, I think, in the uh, governor's campaign. She, they ask her about education, and she says, yes, but to get the education in Alaska, we have to have energy independence. And, it, I mean, it's like she gives like one half of a sentence, and then she launches into, as you say, a word salad about why we need to be able to drill in Anwar. <laughs> I'll tell you where that was. This is a great <laughs> moment. It's an, it, that's a very important moment mm-hmm. in her story. That actually was in a Charlie Rose interview. Oh, really? Yes. Charlie Rose interviewed her and Janet Napolitano uh, together after they had both been featured in Newsweek as uh, up-and-coming women elected officials, and it may have been up-and-coming women governors and the the growing number of women governors, which is a great thing Mm -hmm. and a very important thing. And Palin's part of an important movement to get us away from the old boys club in uh, American politics. Unfortunately, I think she set the cause back many years. Yes. I'm serious, and uh, I think that's a problem. So what you're talking about is an interview with uh, Charlie Rose and Janet Napolitano. Anyone can go watch this on uh, YouTube to this day. The McCain advisors had seen that interview. Really? Yes, and they passed it around. They said, look at this, look at this, look at this. Well, she looks pretty good on there, and she's talking about energy independence. But again, if you watch that interview closely, you realize what I say. You know, I, I borrow this line from Gertrude Stein all the time. There's no there there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a hard line about Oakland. But it's true about Sarah Palin. There's no there there. And if you watch that, you wonder how could they have really watched this interview over and over again and seen a national candidate. But that interview with Charlie Rose played a key figure, a key role in her being selected president. Now, the other place where I do this is in the Katie Couric interview. Mm Mm-hmm. And what was fascinating about that, the, 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 the mock-up job that Tina Fey did of, of Palin on Saturday Night Live, was that she didn't change a single word in the answer. <laughs> it was brilliant, okay? Doesn't need to change a single word. She imitates her verbatim, okay? Sarah Palin satirizes herself. It was very strange. It was Brechtian. And the problem I have with the Tina Fey interview, Mm -hmm. again, you can watch the Katie Couric interview on YouTube, go watch it, and look at her eyes. The craziness, the fear, the not knowing where she's going, the deer in the headlight stare that exists in that interview, Tina Fey doesn't get. Mm. She gets the dysfunctional word salad. Mm Mm-hmm. But that look, she doesn't get. So in a way, she softened Palin's behavior. It's interesting. Now, you were talking about the kind of craziness. And and I think before we go here, one thing I do want to talk about is some of her – she presents herself as hockey mom – but uh, she has more in, in common with a, a gentleman whose date just passed yesterday than I think most of us would uh, prefer to believe. Uh, this would be uh, somebody who thought that uh, we wouldn't be here tonight. We're here. <laughs> We're here. Much to Sarah Palin's surprise. I w- <laughs> so talk about her... Uh, you know, end of end times uh, religious views. She comes from, uh, you know, Pentecostal background, uh, clearly had made references to end times and comes out of a very conservative church in Alaska and uh, clearly embraced this very conservative right-wing Christianity, apocalyptic Christianity, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, throughout her political career. Since uh, she became governor, she left that church and has softened 
her views. And what I want to argue about Palin that I argue a little in the book at the end in the epilogue Mm -hmm. is that what she's done is she's taken that apocalyptic notion of religion and secularized it with her political rhetoric so that, you know, now instead of quoting from the Bible all the time, as she used to do, she now quotes from Ronald Reagan all the time. That's He's become the new deity, and it's the same type of, of language, the same type of fear-based view of the world that has been shifted now from evangelical Christianity to right-wing conservative Republican ideology. It's, it's Dr. Strangelove. She can't keep that hand down, no, no. matter what the hand is. <laughs> no, she can't. <laughs> now, uh, I'd like you to, to talk uh, about, you know, the, the, the Gifford incident and this kind of tone-deaf uh, instance. Because it's, I think this is where kind of she's last left us. But, you know, it's also interesting to me. It does not matter what she says. She shows up on CNN in the political ticker every single day. The, the media will not let her alone. Well, that's two questions. Okay. <laughs> okay. First of all, in regards to, to Gabby Giffords, mm-hmm. Sarah Palin and her associates placed a crosshair on Giffords District in Arizona during the 2010 congressional elections. Okay, not the first time crosshairs have ever been used in uh, political campaign imagery. But Giffords talked about that, Mm. not once, but twice. She referenced Palin putting those crosshairs on her district, and she did it by name. She named Sarah Palin Mm. and talked about what that does to increase the the violent rhetoric mm-hmm. in American society and what that was doing in her district. And there were some violent acts in her district. Mm-hmm. Her opponent used violent imagery against her as well. No one, there were some people who directly blamed Palin for that violence, okay? I certainly don't. There's no direct link to the crazy gunman who took the life of six people and injured, I think, what, 12 or 14 more, Mm -hmm. okay, including Gabby Giffords, near fatally. Sarah Palin wasn't directly responsible, but she contributed to the violent rhetoric that ramped up uh, an atmosphere of violence in that congressional district and in this country. Those people are her base. That's her base, but she revs them up. Mm -hmm. And what I have argued and what I've said to Republican operatives, the moment that Sarah Palin went on the hustings and said that Barack Obama is different than you and me, which was racially coded language Mm -hmm. and religiously coded language, that he's different from you and me, that he's palling around with terrorists. She objectified him in a way and ramped up the violence in this country beyond what is acceptable, beyond the bounds of acceptability. And who believed that? John McCain believed that. John McCain was concerned about racially charged rhetoric in the 2008 campaign. He forbade the discussion about Reverend Wright and Sarah Palin crossed that line knowingly and willingly. She betrayed John McCain and by so doing, she gave body to this dark underbelly of violent rhetoric in this country and I think she needs to be held accountable. I think that anybody who's interested in the political life of this country or in just reading a great story about a really fascinating if somewhat terrifying person could do could do no better than to pick up The Lies of Sarah Palin, the new book by my guest, Jeffrey Dunn. Jeff? I just want to say, I will be at Bookshop Santa Cruz signing books this Wednesday, 7.30, 
Bookshop Santa Cruz. That sounds like a, the place to be, and you can ask him more questions. We barely scratched the surface of this book here. Thank you for joining me on Talk of the Bay tonight, Jeff. Great being here. Thank you. Great questions. Really appreciated it. My name is Rick Kleffel, and you're listening to Talk of the Bay. KUSP is committed to bringing you the best public radio 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But sometimes old and unreliable equipment prevents us from delivering on that promise. How can you help us build a better and more reliable station? Find out at KUSP.org slash upgrade 2011. This is Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP Santa Cruz. Coming up next, it's the sound of young America. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs> 